Frank Ermelitic and thanks for listening to Talking Architecture and Design brought to you in association with the Architecture and Design Network. You can catch up with news, projects, interviews and much more at architectureanddesign.com.au where you can also subscribe to our newsletters and magazine. Welcome to Talking Architecture and Design. My name is Frank Ermelitic and today we have with us our thrice I believe, returning guest in the form of Tone Wheeler. Tone Wheeler is a lot of things. Architect, lecturer, builder, author, entrepreneur, mentor, government advisor, critic and columnist. To that long list of salubrious accolades and achievements, we can now add the winner of the Lifetime Achievement Award at the 2021 Sustainability Awards. This is perhaps the crowning glory to what has been a stellar and fascinating career. Wheeler is certainly a person with strong opinions who's happy to share those opinions, whether you want to hear them or not. He's also a person who, who believes that he could fix, we could fix much of our urban ills with just a little bit of grey matter applied to our planning and design processes. So welcome to Talking Architecture and Design, Tone Wheeler. Thanks, Branko. Very kind. I've got to say, um, before we get on to the award and, 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 and whatever else we're going to talk about, how has the pandemic been treating you in terms of your work and the industry? Oh, I think there was a marked difference between the first lockdown, which was a bit novel for people, and the second, which has become much more serious. Yeah, okay. And not, not as long-lasting, but it's bit a lot deeper. Um, I think it's changed everything about work practices. Um, architecture and building are still soldiering on. In fact, construction is one of the things that's keeping the economy going so strongly. But uh, working from home means that staff have a completely different attitude to work, to hours, to time, to holidays, rostered days off, so on and so on. It's, it, that's, it, it's actually the way we practice, not the amount of it that we're doing that's changed. Okay, interesting. Yeah, I, I, I was reading this morning that there's a, they're talking about a new variant, and I, I, just, I just closed that story and just went on to read sport or something a little bit more, uh, less threatening. Um, <laughs> Anyway, on to the award itself, which, which actually um, you got exactly two weeks ago. Um, let me read actually the description of the award first. The Lifetime Achievement Award for the Sustainability Awards goes to a person who has, over their career, shown exemplary effort in advancing the progression of the sustainable built environment in Australia. Okay. I've got to say, under that definition you should have got this award a long time ago so why didn't you get a long time ago tell me um that's for the judges to explain it wasn't the first time that i applied Uh uh-huh um look there were other more worthy recipients in the past it just uh you know you got try 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 again isn't that the whole thing it's uh, it's certainly it certainly is so look I know you've gotten a lot of awards and accolades over, over, and you've had a lot of achievements and some celebrated, some not, some recognised, some not. But I've got to say, how do you how do you feel about your peers and the judges are your peers, right? Um, giving you this award. I mean, um, how does it make you feel? Is it a, oh, I don't know, a vindication of everything that you've done? I- well, yeah, as you say, um, it's a lifetime achievement, and I've lived a long lifetime. I, I turned 70 this year. Okay. And I won the um, Leadership in Sustainability from the National Institute of Architects as an, a, a prize for that, the, which actually spells LISP, the Leadership in Sustainability Prize, which I don't have. But um, And I shared that with Caroline Pidcock, uh, which I think is one aspect of what I've done in leadership, but it was more the the acceptance speech I gave to this, which I think told, well, I tried to tell how important it was to me and that it wasn't really for me. It was for a whole lot of people I met along the way. And that very long, strange trip that it's been to um, use the words from the Grateful Dead. And I thought we might just expand on that acceptance speech because there's a few people who said to me that that 
sounded like an interesting, um, crazy journey that I went on to, well, um, to get where I am in 50 years. It is a journey, isn't it? And, and, and here's the thing. Um, in a way, in a way, architects are a bit like artists. They usually only get recognised after they've died, right? I mean, let's let's face it. You know, <laughs> I'm sure Francis Greenway was not being being lauded when he was alive that much, anyway. Well, but, I'm I'm not intending on shuffling off just yet. Yeah, well, that's the point. Just, so just, the fact is that the fact is that you're still here with us with our semi sentient beings that we are. That kind of says something, doesn't it, about about your work and your life? Doesn't it? Oh, look, I. I've really enjoyed myself in this. I, and I wouldn't say that I've led uh, an aesthete's life in that. I've really enjoyed the, the long journey, the long and wild journey. And um, I'll probably be paying a price for it, uh, in all truth, you know. Um, slowed up a little bit. But I think looking back over it, it divided into four different parts which sort of corresponded with what was happening in sustainability you know my life was governed by what was happening externally with sustainability aspects and so that's one of the things I thought we might talk about today okay well um tell me um you got into sustainability was it wasn't it all from memory yeah I'm, I'm no spring chicken anymore so maybe my memory might be failing me but it was almost by accident wasn't it uh I was really lucky that after a, an appallingly nasty high school education, I went to university and I was lucky enough that the architecture course that I landed in, because really it was the only thing that I wanted to study. I, I didn't really know that much about architecture. I'd not, there'd be no, nothing in the family in terms of architecture or indeed sustainability or anything else like that. But the first year master, as he was characterised at the time, was a guy called Mar Grounds, who was the son of very famous architect Sir Roy Grounds, but was polar opposites to, to what Roy was doing. And the course at Sydney University was a bit like that. It was not so much about architecture. It was more about social and environmental conditions and issues and Ma opened the eyes of many of us in those early years, and we're talking about the beginning of the 70s, to the notions of alternatives. And the idea of an alternative society ran huge. He had very interesting background. He'd actually served in the Marines in the United States and then done a master's in environmental art or in art and architecture um, at Berkeley, which was the centre of the alternative world in those days, in the late 60s. And he brought all that idea of alternatives. And that just seemed to me fantastic. I had a fairly constrained suburban life as a teenager, and I'd not enjoyed school very much at all. And this was just a complete revelation. And so we had a few years of architecture school, talking about passive solar design, talking about... Um, Sunshine and Shade in Australasia by Ralph Phillips's wonderful book about calculating solar angles and so on. But underlying it was this idea that you could completely radically change everything that had been happening in the past. And it was happening in music, it was happening in film, cinema, theatre. And the possibilities in architecture, because it takes a lot longer for it to filter through in architecture, weren't being made manifest. So when I'd finished my first science degree, uh, the science of, in architecture, I left Australia to go and study in the States. Almost everybody else in my year went the overland route across Asia um, into the Middle East and then on into London was the destination. And in a way, they were following the other Tony Wheeler, the Tony and Maureen, who'd done that trip in the late 60s and then started Lonely Planet. And there was this trip that you did that went all the way across. And that would have been fantastic. But my, for some reason, I, Ma in particular had opened the idea that there were alternatives in, in the southwest of the United States. So I left for Los Angeles, was going to base myself at UCLA, which I did 
and met some students there and just, it just exploded all these different possibilities. And I traveled, started to travel fairly widely, went down into Mexico, which was um, fantastic because it was experimenting with all sorts of things like desalination and so on to get fresh water. Um, but the main interest was to go out into the, uh, the Southwest. And prior to getting to Los Angeles, I'd read Rainer Bannum's book, Los Angeles, the City of the Four Ecologies. It was the first time that someone applied the idea of ecology to urban design. And that actually became incredibly important a few years later. Bannum's book is a complete revelation. And, and I fell in love with Los Angeles, but I know most people don't. But it is a city of these four different ecologies. And if you imagine the different parts of it, if you find an ecology that supports you, it is fantastic. But then I, I got on a bus overnight and I picked up, there were two books that had just been published, was um, the Robert Venturi um, and uh, Isenauer book on learning from Las Vegas. Um, and that, that book became the talisman of what was going on um, around the world. Um, I think that book is actually driven by Robert Venturi's wife, Denise Scott Brown, and I'd like to pay tribute to that because I think it. Robert Venturi had this hard edge to it, but there was this kind of much more intellectual but much more practical aspects to seeing architecture in Las Vegas. And then, of course, um, I'd read that or dipped into it. And then overnight on the bus, I read Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas with uh, Hunter S. Thompson and Ralph Steadman. And Ralph Steadman to this day is one of, probably my favourite cartoonist at the time. And I read this book and then I arrived and I was completely shell-shocked at what I was seeing. So I walked the strip and thought, well, this is one alternative version of America. This is the America of capitalism gone rampant, um, the idea of gambling and uh, sex and drugs and rock and roll, because that's exactly what was in learning from Las Vegas. Uh, and so in, in, in from fear and loathing in Las Vegas. Um, and learning from Las Vegas was, was quite sober by comparison, but when you actually got there, it was pretty seedy. Um, and it still is, but it's much bigger and much seedier and probably even more, um, more corrupt now. So I thought, well, this is great. I, I, I won about $100 um, on a gaming table and jumped immediately on the bus and left Las Vegas because I would have lost 10 times that and headed further southwest. And I went um, and stayed on hippie communes, which is it's kind of this strange trip. All the communes were relying on alternative technology, which is what sustainability was called very early on. Um, they had solar water heating. A lot of it derived from Australian technologies, the, the idea of an integrated tank. Uh, one of them, uh, Rob Reiner, said had this system of wind generators set up for domes in Colorado, where it snowed, it was like six or eight feet of snow, you know, a couple of meters of snow in winter. And he had the domes set up, domes, of course, with such heavy insulation in them that they insulated the interior of it for interseasonal work. In other words, he could store hot water that he got in summer and use it to heat the dome all the way through winter. So it wasn't a day, diurnal thing, which we understand in passive design. This was interseasonal. And you had these three wind generators, and they had quirks written on them. And of course, when I arrived, I at that stage knew that quirks were an Australian brand, that they're still around, they're very big in refrigeration. But in those days, they had made wind generators for the outback farms in Australia. And they were well known for making these very small 300 watt to 2000 watt generators. 
And he had them set up and he went. So when I arrived, he said to me, oh, you're Australian. You can tell us all about these alternative technologies, which is kind of funny in a way. It was like I hadn't, I'd, I'd had to go over there and see them all being used quite widely. And I, st- I tripped around. I met Steve um, Bayer, who made zomes, which is sort of one step on from a dome. He was using old oil barrels, what we would call a 44-gallon or 50-American-gallon oil tank, and he faced it out behind glass and got it got hot during the daytime, particularly in the desert. And then he could seal it up by having this flap that lay on the ground that, that he wound up with a crane or a winch, rather, to close it off and then heat the interior of the house with the, the oil barrels. And he kind of liked that using the capitalist fossil fuel industry against itself so that you could create an alternative energy source. And there were rock systems of, you know, keeping heat in rocks, which when you're in the desert, it's also a very good place to keep um, spiders and snakes as well. Which So there's a lot of learnings, both plus and minus, when I'm visiting all these places. And then I went on, I continued on and did go to London and Graham Kane at Cambridge University had built his own experimental street farmhouse, as it was called, and he grew food in what he called the living room. It's a great name for something that things are, are growing. And he had a methane digester um, for dealing with human waste and turning it into methane so that he could power himself and cook things. And I came back to Australia to write a thesis about all of this. It was an honest thesis based on it. And I talked to some people about how you might reconstruct all these systems that I'd seen as alternative systems for an alternative architecture in the future. Um, And at ANU, I visited and was talking to Stephen Boyden, who was the head of ecology there, and he recommended a book by Howard Odom. And so there's all these connections quite often through very good academia. Howard Odom is the guru of the science of ecology drawn through diagrams that look like electrical circuitry. So I tried and struggled to do this. Um, And I tried to write everything that I knew in an academic sense, in a rigorous sense, um, for my honours thesis, um, and it was failed. Um, Which wasn't terribly good because I'd been one of the sort of um, bright-eyed students of first year, and so much so that I'd actually been hired in second year to do some teaching. So it was a kind of unusual thing to be failed in something. And I appealed for it and I got a conceded pass. Um, not the first or the last time I got one of those. And so I, I do have an honours degree, but I don't publicise that. But Cole James had started teaching at Sydney University at that time. We've spoken about him a few times. And many people listening to this will know this absolutely legendary teacher, architect, extraordinary man but he was interested in social sustainability although it wasn't called that at the time but he was working with uh, the indigenous population in Redfern to try and get an, a, a reasonable outcome that, that took another 30 years in fact to get and he was working with Tom Uren in because the Whitlam government had come into power and Tom was trying to broker a better deal for Woolloomooloo and Cole was down there doing that And he said to me, I've heard that you've got something on autonomous housing. Have you got any pictures? Yeah, a few slides, like 3,000 slides. I said, can you come and give a class to second and third year students, which I did. And it was all the stuff that I'd seen in America and in the UK, but mostly this stuff that was alternative technologies of solar power, solar storage, wind generation, battery storage, um, methane digesters, water collection, water storage, all of these. And I don't know, it must have been a sort of one and a half hour lecture with a few questions afterwards. And Cole immediately said, well, all of those things that you showed us look like all experimental buildings. Why don't we build one? Turned to the class and said, do you want to build one? (laughs) And of course, this is the mid-70s. And the kids just went, yeah. 
So a whole bunch of second and third year students, and I was hired as a fifth year student to be a tutor to help with them. But we, we clubbed together and we started building the autonomous house on the grounds of Sydney University. Now, there's a whole story about the autonomous house, which I think would make an, a, another podcast entirely because there's a long, long story of the shenanigans that went on for that thing to be built and last for five years before it was demolished. For the purposes of my journey, what became apparent was that autonomy at, through alternative technology is very difficult. And it, it became immediately apparent that we it works at different scales. And so we were trying to isolate ourselves as the people in the Southwest in the United States were trying to do. They were kind of old style, early day preppers. They were actually thinking that the entire United States economy and political basis would collapse. And if it didn't collapse, it should collapse. <laughs> and they should survive it by being in alternative communities and so on. And there were, they were big and small. There were you know, big political ones like Paolo Soleri and was working on one called Arca Santi, which I worked at for a little while. And there were, so this idea that you cut yourself off from society seemed to be a great idea, but the technologies were beguiling. It kept going, but I, I finished my final year at university, um, got another conceded pass for um, designing student accommodation in containers that were clipped to the side of Fisher Library. Um, and uh, instead of designing a sort of Louis Kahn style hall, uh, which many of the people in my year had done much better in Paul Berkmeyer and Alex Sands. And um, there were very, very talented group of architects and I was just simply the alternative technology buff. So I left, um, I had won a scholarship then to go and work with the federal government. Most, most graduates in those days started life with either the state government, um, which um, I don't know, half a dozen or more people had studied with, um, and Alex Sands was certainly one of those, or they were with the Commonwealth government, there was people like Paul Berkmeyer and Cole Brady and myself. But I got posted to Canberra, which was my lucky break because I started working with the Commonwealth government down there. And they said, what do you know about? It? I said, you know, passive solar housing. I wasn't going to tell them that I was into methane digesters. And immediately they directed me into this sort of second stage where it's not about autonomy, but about community. It was about passive solar rather than alternative technology. It was about measurement of it and writing uh, promotional material. So it was a sort of stage of moral encouragement. We were going to encourage people to a better lifestyle and a better, uh, more energy efficiency was, was in fact the key words. So passive solar morphed into this idea of energy efficiency in housing and in planning. And so I was lucky enough to be working on projects for the National Capital Development Commission, who ran Canberra at the time. And so this is late 70s, and they are interested in all of the new ideas, including what does passive solar mean for a planning organisation? Um, so I basically redesigned a whole suburb to show them what it would look like if you took the planning arrangements for this suburb called Waniasa. The main street of Waniasa, by the way, is Wheeler Crescent, not named after me and what I was doing. Um, and I had actually purchased a block of land north facing, north sloping, looking at Mount Taylor on Wheeler Crescent and built my first house a year out of university. But it wasn't an alternative. It was, it was nothing to do with the autonomous house. In fact, it was it owed a lot, lot more to the time the tutors to, to Glenn Merkett and to Rick Lapastrier, but it was a passive, aggressively passive solar house. But for both summer and winter, the difference was that I realised that Canberra had this long, hot, dry summer and we wanted to be able to keep cool in it. We, we grew to call it the no-can-do club because they tended to push back against it. The halcyon days of Dirk Bolt working on multiple 
community centres and and suburban centres and redesigning whole suburbs that had been done in the mid to late 60s had gone by the, the late 70s. But we did manage to write a book called Energy Efficiency for Australian Housing, and it's gone through a variety of editions. Um, and the second and third editions were done by John Ballinger, whom I could pay tribute to at this point because he passed away just recently. And, but I struggled to write a book to encapsulate all the alternative technologies into one consumer acceptable book, you know, leaving out all the kind of weird and wacky stuff I'd seen in the States. And this was to be much more mainstream. So that was a kind of attempt at moral encouragement. You could have a house which didn't cost you so much in energy that you could collect your own water, you could run your own uh, garden and you could collect as much solar hot water that you needed and you could passively cool and heat your house. Um, not long after that, I started teaching a little bit at what was then the Canberra CAE. And they were a brilliant thing because they had been set up not as universities, but as teaching schools. So they just invited people in who could teach. And I, by that stage, had learnt enough from both my father, who was an excellent orator, and my need to do a little bit of teaching on the side that, you know, I could now talk underwater with a mouthful of marbles. So I went out to the CAE and started talking about alternative technologies and passive solar and got a, um, a permanent teaching job there with a couple of really brilliant people, David Harmon, who was in charge of architectural science as such, and Steve King, who taught the crossover between architectural science and design. It was a very small school. There were only seven staff teaching five years of architecture. So unlike most architecture schools where you have one particular hat for your faction or your place in it all, uh, there we had to have several hats. You know, we had to oscillate between various things. And mine was, of course, design. I was very interested in particularly domestic scale design and, and civic buildings and also technology. So I started to write mechanisms, which mechanics that could let you understand whether one design was better than another in passive design terms. They were based on some early work at the CSIRO, the Division of Mechanical Engineering, which is in, was in Hyatt in Victoria. And I'd gone down there several times and they had a computer program that would take multiple variables, such as you know, wind and sun and temperature, solar radiation, ground temperature and so on, and could model what would happen to a particular designed house in most cases, houses. And they were actually building an experimental house as well. And this was a computer program called Chenith. Long, complicated story why it's called that. But anyway, it doesn't matter that it was, it was in a mainframe computer. You know, you're punching computer cards at this point and feeding them in. You're learning to document in Fortran and other languages. And I remember I got this printout and, and I, you know, it, it made my luggage overweight when I flew back from Melbourne to Sydney because it was this giant piece of paper which you can get any small laptop to do in, in seconds rather than in hours that this was running, which is part of the point which we'll come to as to how things change. Um, and this was leading into the sort of second wave of sustainability, which was when things started to move from to energy efficiency, then the government got involved and said, we want to document this. We want to make it enforceable or at least make it more widely known, like moral encouragement to do it, which is what my book had done. But also we want better programs meaning public service programs, not computer programs, to promote the idea and then later to control it. So I had been drawing what's called nomograms, which are now lost in the history of time. But these are things where you can 
put various variables into a, onto a page and you trace it up and you, you go through various, and it, you, go, you start on the left, bottom left-hand side of the piece of paper and you go up and by making various choices as you, on the bottom right-hand, it tells you how many kilowatts per square metre your building will use. I, I loved making these things. It was kind of architectural science put to you know, fairly good use. Um, and that was at the CAE. And then I was invited to participate in the uh, Solar Energy Society meetings and gatherings and learnt that there were a whole number of people who were interested in passive solar and so on. Interestingly, there's a difference between the people in Sydney who were, I would say, technocratic. Um, the people like Stephen Zoccoli and John Ballinger that I mentioned earlier on. Um, and there was a group in University of New South Wales called Solark, which we're interested in that, versus a group in Melbourne, which were much more design and politically oriented. This particularly was centred around the Caldicuts, Alan Caldicutt in particular, and his niece Sue Caldicutt, and Deborah White um, and Terry Williamson, both of whom went on to teach in Adelaide with very, very storied and, and brilliant careers. The, the, Deborah had published a book um, which was much more political in terms of how you would go about um, re-engineering the future than the kind of technocratic stuff that was happening with the Solar Energy Society in Sydney. But I was at that stage working in Sydney on things and John Ballinger was starting to use Chinoth as the CSIRO engine to build a front end to it, to be able to provide a score for passive solar houses. And this um, was, there was a group monitoring it um, and uh, a board for it, which I was invited to, to join. And my skills in computers in those days were absolutely terrible and haven't got any better, but I understood what was going on and it eventually morphed into something called NATERS, the National Housing Energy. And, and here's the issue. Um, it became the ratings scheme. Um, but the original version of NATERS was that it was a research scheme. So NATERS enabled you to feed in various variables in a design, use this updated Chinath engine from CSIRO and build an image of the energy use both summer and winter. It was a fantastic research tool and it, and it was designed for designers and before it could be fleshed out to be really design friendly, um, the New South Wales government through the Sustainable Energy Development Authority, SEDA, which no longer exists, had promoted the idea that through Natters you could have a some form of computer program that would you would have to be, get a certain score in that program. Now I've telescoped, I've telescoped you know, two decades in that little description of it there, but what happened is we moved from the idea of morally encouraging people to then enforcing it through government regulation. So the sort of second wave of it was that you had to get a certain star rating in your house. And Natters wasn't really well equipped to do that. We were asking a scientifically based research program designed for design, to be a publicly built control program that gave regulatory requirements. And the translation of those two was, was terrible. That the HMB, the, the housing monitoring board, the housing measurement board, as it was, that morphed eventually into. ABSA, the Association of Building Sustainability Assessors, and it became building assessment. There were a whole lot of boards that I served on through that period 
that were trying to get Natters to be user-friendly, and there was enormous pushback. We, we, had, we had the moral high ground, but we didn't have the scientific and particularly the regulatory nous. And there were various people, particularly Lindsay and Kerry Clare, who just said, Natus doesn't apply in, in Queensland. And by the way, all of our houses, which are fantastically loved by our clients and work brilliantly in the, in the Queensland climate, they get one and a half stars or half stars and, and fights broke out. There is a whole long reason about that, but that's yet another podcast, perhaps to go into Natter's. It morphed in, in New South Wales into basics. It was incorporated into a brilliant idea to have a computer-based program that you had to fill out a series of requirements with your house. You had to get a Natter's pass, and then you had to part, which is thermal comfort. And then you had to pass in energy and in water. And Rod Simpson um, was another brilliant architect in sustainability, um, wrote most of that programming. It was, it was essentially a giant Excel spreadsheet um, with certain uh, algorithms built into it, as you can do in an Excel spreadsheet, and certain um, measurements in it that allowed you to do what my nomograms had done in the uh, the early 80s. Now in the early 2000s, we were able to do it via computer. There were assessors who were then trained to use it. But the pushback gave that kind of green idea of, uh, of where we were in sustainability became an issue. Um, because the, um, the issue for the public was, do I still get my house or am I going to live in a science experiment or am I going to live in some, you know, am I going to live in a dome from southwest the United States? And so a lot of the narrative at that point had to stop. And the, the, the junction of that was change into the third wave of it. And the person that you can pinpoint that did that is a guy called Chris Reardon. Um, unfortunately, he's passed away now, but he was a student at the Canberra CAE when I was teaching there, and he was a rebel. He was from the country, and he just he had different ideas about building things, and he really understood the notion of being scientifically true to yourself. And he spent a long time after he graduated only from the first degree at the CAE to do buildings which were very passive solar, but, but deep green, you would call them. And he had a huge commitment to it. And he started with only a bachelor's degree in design on a doctorate at what was then the very, very new Institute for, for, Institute for Sustainable Futures under Stuart White, who was a amazing uh, scientist on sustainability as well as a brilliant administrator who, who's made ISF, the Institute for Sustainable Futures, allied to UTS, the brilliant research area that it is. He embarked on a PhD and what he wanted to do was to bring sustainability to the public because he could see that the first wave of moral encouragement didn't work and the second wave of regulation, although he believed in it all, it wasn't having the impact that he wanted. And the very first thing he did is he did research on what a website or technical manual would be called. Would it be energy efficiency, alternative technology, green, whatever? Sustainability was the word that was being brought up all the time. Now, by, by 2000, the idea of sustainability, particularly the idea of triple bottom line sustainability, because the book called Cannibals with Forks had introduced this idea of the TBL, the triple bottom line. And that morphed into your home. And the single thing you need to know about your home, or two things, it's called your home because it doesn't mention green or sustainability or anything else, but it's the best sustainability website for domestic architecture in the world, I believe. I mean, I, I had a small part in some of the technical material. I had a bigger part in how it would be framed earlier on in discussions with Chris, but it's all Chris. Um, 
in setting it all up and still acknowledged um, now as the lead author in this fantastic lifestyle change. The third wave of this was not to talk about green or sustainable or solar panels or passive. You just simply talked about how to be better, more comfortable. I'm Branko Melodic. Thanks for listening to Talking Architecture and Design, brought to you in association with the Architecture and Design Network. The A&D Network proudly presents the Sustainability Awards now in their 14th year. You can find more information at sustainablebuildingawards.com.au. And now back to our podcast. So thermal comfort, which is what a passive solar is about, is really about convincing people that they could have a warmer house in winter and a cooler house in summer through very simple techniques. And by that stage, there were quite a lot of books that did that very basic physics in it. Um, Nick Hollow's book, Warm House, Cool House, is the one that most people would know. It's a fantastic, it's a documentation of passive solar ideas at, the, at that time that you could easily adapt into a house. That lasted, I think, for another 10 or 15 years that we were now talking about how we could get it into the populace, not by saying that it's a good thing that you should do it and not by regulating for it and saying you must do it, but simply saying it's a really good thing you should do it. I think that was a failure as well. <laughs> One advance, you know, I was an advisor to a uh, several um, project home builders, one in particular, Cosmopolitan or Cosmo as it was known. Cosmopolitan had a particular house that was very highly set up to be sustainable. You know, double height voids for uh, buoyancy of hot air in summer to be evacuated out of the house, passive solar orientation, um, having internal ductwork, ceiling fans everywhere. And it, had, it came as one particular design. They all had a particular name, and this one was the Aquarius, which had been originally designed by Michael Heenan at AJC. And they sold, at one stage, the figures that I managed to find, close to 100 um, a hundred of these houses in the first couple of years, not one of them took the sustainability package. Not one was sold at the base price. They were all modded up with more garages, more rumpus rooms, more bedrooms, more bathrooms, but no one took the sustainability package. If you, were, if you said, do you want a solar water heater or do you want a reconstituted stone benchtop? You know what the answer is. So why keep faith in sustainability? Well, this is the denouement of the, the story, really, is that it goes to a fourth wave that's occurred in the last five years in that all the things that we had hoped for in the previous 40, 50 years, the building from the mid-60s and so on, based on the early works of... Um, Jane Jacobs and the Death and Life of Great American Cities and Silent Spring by Rachel Carson and Barbara Ward's Only One Earth. This ideal that had been there suddenly made economic sense. It was just cheaper to put photovoltaic panels in than build a coal-fired power station or, God forbid, a nuclear power station. So the story can be told through solar water heating and photovoltaic electricity. One is called solar thermal. It makes hot water, which you can use. We never got to more than 5% of the Australian housing having solar water heaters on it, despite them being the best option in basics and the best way of water heating, particularly in Perth, where you get these long, Brilliantly bright sky days. Photovoltaics came in, which make electricity. They're the big blue panels that you can 
feed electricity into your house, you can feed it into a battery or you can feed it back into the grid. More than 25% of Australian homes now have photovoltaic panels in the last seven years when the previous 35 years we could not get solar water heaters onto the roofs. They, they, they were developed in two countries, Israel and Australia. We, we had the same kind of designs, the same engineering, the same scientists. If you go to Israel, you find the roofs on almost everything, including apartment buildings, are filled with solar water heaters, but not us. We put... We waited until solar panels became viable. And that's where we are now. All of a sudden, the old Quirks 300-watt small wind generator is now an enormous wind generator sitting in a paddock at 5 kVA or, or bigger. You know, there's a massive supply and grouped together in different places on the grid. The grid becomes the battery. People are putting batteries into their own house. Now we're working out ways that the, the electric car, which was the very first car that was ever invented, really, um, it uh, suddenly that car could be your battery. So instead of you relying on the battery to drive you around, when you park the car, you could draw on the battery in that car to keep your lights on and your bat in your computer going for uh, you know, overnight. So it, it works both ways. So suddenly, technology, you know, the alternative technology that I'd started with fifty years ago, was now so mainstream because it it made cost effective sense. We get to the point where what I now call it is. The green karma runs over the brown dogma. Australia, sadly, has the worst brown dogma in the world. We've just seen that at COP26. I'm talking to you, Branko, just you know, a couple of weeks after COP out 26. Um, and we just saw our politicians go there and just betray the Australian creativity by saying that, you know, we'll have the lowest targets, and we won't even call them targets. And, you know, it, it, was, it was an absolute shame and a sham. And these are people who brought a lump of coal into federal parliament. These are people who are still advocating for the government, wanting government to get out of our lives, except they actually wanted to build fossil fuel coal-fired power stations. They are nothing at the federal level unfortunately, in all three of the parties, uh, are, are just so backward when it comes to sustainability. You know, the, the Labor Party relies on Joel Fitzgibbon as its own spokesperson and has done. And the Greens voted against an ETS, an emissions trading scheme, was it now almost 15 years ago, that would have transformed the way in which Australia operates. So I, I just think we have the worst brown dogma one of them is even called Brown. Um, and yet the green karma, the idea of solar panels, wind generators, batteries, water tanks, water storage, gardens, organic gardens, growing your own food, reconfiguring the suburb, doing it at a community level, all makes economic sense as well as social sense. People are ripping up the... The median strips or the the, uh, the little green space on, on footpaths to grow vegetables and fruit. And why? Because it's free, you know, just, and it works. And the watering is coming from tanks. So I'm grateful that I lived long enough over the 50-year span to, to see all of that happen. Um, you know, the, my own personal involvement is that you know, there's a couple of projects that I got to work on that I think were brilliant for that. One, one of them is the Wayside Chapel, which we've talked about. Yeah. No, it's an absolute beacon in King's Cross for people who are on the down and out, but their visitors get treated to a very highly sustainable building, you know, solar water heating and 
so on in a building that's naturally ventilated, naturally cross-ventilated, even though it's in right in the heart of King's Cross and made from re re recyclable and reusable and, and repurposeful materials. And the other one is the Kingspan manufacturing facility in Melbourne, which makes Kingspan insulation. Now, Kingspan are an Irish company originally, but they've actually been very successful in Australia with their insulation products. They have committed in Australia to be one of the only three places in the world that make phenolic resin insulation, which is, which is this hard surface resin, um, insulation rather, that can be bonded to plasterboard and to uh, fibre cement board and so on and various surfaces. It's a brilliant material, but you, it's hard to make and you need a big facility. They make a huge commitment to make it. For the Asian market, it's going to be made in Melbourne. Is, made, is being made in Melbourne, in, in the, Australia's very first factory and warehouse and, and office that is Six Star Green Star. It, it, we long know how to do offices in Six Star and to use that as moral encouragement for people in office buildings to get a better grade of building by having it rated either in Green Star or Neighbours. But this was a factory and warehouse and it was quite a big struggle, but we, we managed to make something that is pleasant to work in when most factories and warehouses are not. And the office space has been a very, you know, it's been very successful. So that was my pleasure that you can actually, I put it into practice. A lot of the people I met along the way were academics, scientists, policy advisors, advocates, and so on. Um, and I loved working with all of them, but my heart and soul in it was always I wanted to make buildings. I made numerous houses and, and a couple of those big buildings at the end that are truly sustainable, triple bottom line sustainable. Um, so I, I look forward to keeping doing I'm just going to keep making buildings. But as you know, um, through architecture and design, I've got a platform for some advocacy um, from continuing to, to talk about this, this long history, trying to put some perspective on it all. Listening to what you're saying, two things struck me. One is that it seems to me that sustainability has gone like feminism. We're now on the fourth wave of both. Um, well, I can gather. Um, also, secondly, your career seems to have almost mirrored that of Martin Scorsese. So you both started off about the late 60s. You both had a bit of experimentation in the 70s. You've honed your craft in the 80s, um, kind of continued through the 90s, and here we are in the 21st century. The one thing that all, after everything that you've said, you've never actually explained is why. I ask why was sustainability or ecology or green, whatever you want, whatever it was called back in the in the in the wild, old early days, um, it wasn't mainstream. It wasn't well, I won't say it wasn't needed, but it wasn't recognized to be needed. Um, it was a counterculture or an expression of a counterculture. Um and yet you've embraced it and I guess you've that. I mean, there were so many other things in architecture that you could go, go in. Yeah. So many different areas. I mean, you know, you could have, you could have designed, you know, you could, you, uh, you could have come up with a whole brand new type of design, a, a type of style. But no, you, you've gone down a way where, where it, it's, well, it, it was niche and in a way it's still niche when you think about it. You've never actually said why. The very early years I had were so stifling in suburbia. It was a really safe, comfortable, my mum's still alive, so if she's ever listening to this, it was, a, it was a great childhood and growing up, but it was really boring. And the idea of an alternative to all of that was attractive. And so I've always been interested in what was an alternative or 
what was excellent. And I think it was a large part of the middle of my career when I, particularly when I was teaching at university, that I would, I would never show buildings that I thought were poor or wrong, which is what I had been taught. I would, I would only show buildings which I thought had excellence in, in whatever way. Not all of it was to do with sustainability. I, I, I don't think you, you can't be successful in that one narrow, in that narrow idea of sustainability, unless you actually talk about good design. And if you talk about good design, then you, you naturally incorporate sustainability ideas. You know, if you're trying to design very good space. So there are architects that, that I admired enormously um, who weren't necessarily sustainable architects in that, in that name, but I was trying to teach the idea of the qualities of building, the qualities of space. You know, Alva Alto, Jorn Utzon, um, and uh, that that part of the Scandinavian ideas of it. Louis Kahn in the United States, you know, you could, almost any Louis Kahn building you go into is astonishingly beautiful space. And it's also comfortable and there's all sorts of things about them that, that work With, without it being a, a, a demonstrably technocratic thing. There's a wonderful little book called For an Architecture of Reality by Michael Benedict. It's, a, it's an easy read. It's you know, 80 pages and there's barely a paragraph on each page. But he argues for an architecture that you ex experience in terms of space. And thermal comfort's one of the five basic things that you, you see, you feel, the haptic sense of touch, your thermal comfort and so on, the audible quality of it. So if you are to make a successful architecture, you have to be aware of those things and it becomes more and more obvious. The other thing I think you mentioned about feminism, what's interesting is that almost all, I, I am now a dinosaur in that sense. I'm in the Jurassic Park of sustainable designers because almost all of it now successfully around the world is women. Sure. And, and it, it can be from leadership at the COP. It can be from advocates in school and, and the younger generation. It can be the fact that the Green Building Council of Australia has been led by three CEOs, all of them women. Um, one of our advocates at the COP26 was the aforementioned Caroline Pidcock. Um, it's almost all women, and I think there is another long podcast, and not with me, but with um, women who are in construction, who are feminists, who can tell you why sustainability, which is effectively about space and often about home and often about lifestyle, has had so many people who are advocates for sustainability in the political sense, not in the technocratic. I mean, but I think the women have always been there. They've always been very, very strong. I mentioned the three women earlier on. I mentioned Deborah White. I think the politics of sustainability is more interesting now than the technology of it. In fact, I think the technocratic things are done. Um, you know, there, there are only one or two books that you need to know how the technology works. I teach a course at UNSW at the moment, and I'm using just two, two books. It's all you need to understand the technology. It's how you do it, not what you do, but how you get there. And quite often the, better, the best negotiators in this world are the women who have commitment to politics. tells me Jane, that uh, there's going to be a few, uh, I guess, episodes of, of this conversation because I think we've touched on areas, so many areas, but some areas that, that are absolutely fascinating. And I dare say that the reason why you were given that Lifetime Achievement Award is that only you could actually explain properly and succinctly as succinctly as, as can be, I guess, 
those some of those uh, um, areas or subjects. I mean, oh, I mean, Brent, I, I I just feel like an imposter in some of this. That I'm just a passenger that was was there at the time. You know, I just I just happened to get lucky every time to be close to when each of those events happened. I just happened to be around. I mean, I don't. I nudged stuff. I really don't think I pushed things in a great way, but I was there to see stuff and I nudged it and I tried to carry one thing forward to the next. I'm sure Abraham Lincoln could say the same thing. I mean, we're all passengers in time, okay? Um, yeah. We're all like Doctor Who's, right? <laughs> but um, it's, it's interesting that, you know, out of your entire body of work, this is really unfair what I'm going to ask you here because it's, it's asking you, it's asking to colour a lot. But out of your entire body of work, what are you most proud of? It's an interest. It's a really interesting question, which I am addressing at the moment. Um, I've done close to twelve hundred projects in, in my career as as architectural projects, um, and slightly less than half of those, it's about five hundred, got built. Um, you could cut out a large portion of that, which was um, some repetition, some project homes, some other things which were mass-produced. Um, but I mentioned, I mentioned only a couple of projects um, that we're working on at the moment, or sorry, that we had been working on at the Wayside Chapel and um, the Kingspan insulation. They lead to two other things that are the things I'm most proud of are the things I'm working on at the moment. And um, one of them is to do affordable and particularly social housing, particularly with the Uniting Church, who, who run the Wayside Chapel. And through Graham Long there, I've been introduced to Kent Crawford and then Church's Housing, and we're now working quite closely with the New South Wales government trying to promote the idea that churches have a vital call to mission to do... Um, to do sustainable and affordable and social housing. So it's a triple bottom line for that. And I wouldn't be able to do it, you know, 20 years ago, I couldn't do it. I, I need to have a whole bunch of commercially based stuff under my belt to be able to talk the feasibility studies to prove that social housing is economically feasible, which is what I'm most proud of at the moment. And the other thing is, is a scheme like the warehouse, uh, only even bigger, uh, about the same length, the, the, the manufacturing facility is about 400 metres long, and I'm doing a scheme at the moment, which is an internal uh, in, indoor ski centre okay. in Penrith, uh, which is nearing its planning pro, um, approval at the moment, um, which, is, which sounds bizarre, but sport, particularly recreational sport, is a huge future. You know, it, 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 it crosses over between tourism exercise, sport, enjoyment, lifestyle. Um, and you've got to make it completely, you know, carbon neutral, actually carbon zero, the popular name. So this is a 350-metre-long ski slope together with skating rinks and hotels and retail and a whole lot of other stuff in a very big building, probably the biggest building I'll do. Well, undoubtedly, you know, I'm not going to get another one of those, but... It is fascinating to try and work out how you can make very large building socially acceptable and sustainable, net zero. So in, in a sense, all of that stuff that I've been doing builds towards being able to answer that. Um, in both cases, by the way, I'm collaborating. You know, I, it's, it, I, I find this idea of the sole architect, the ego architect, the named architect is a... That's an issue. So I'm trying to make them collaborations. Um, and the other thing I'm doing is I'm looking back over those 500 projects. I've pinged out about 100 of them that I think are worthwhile. None of them were above the radar line. These were all houses or small civic buildings. A lot of it was houses and housing. And I think it addressed the idea of the average house, the ordinary house, the everyday house. Because the thing, you asked me about the beginnings of this and why, well, you didn't, you asked me why I got involved in it. And I think the very beginnings of it are to do with being brought up in suburbia 
and I kick against it hugely, but that's what Australia's made of. We're a vast suburban nation. And, and because of your, dare I say, vanilla suburban upbringing, um, you, you initiated Newton's Third Law and, and, and now you've ended up with a Lifetime Achievement Award, which I guess it says something, doesn't it? I mean, you could have, you could have just cruised, but you didn't, um, which I'm glad you didn't. But I mean, architects don't retire. No, not, no. not very much. You just keep working. I mean, some of the most eminent people on the design panels in Sydney at the moment are architects who no longer run in their practices but still contribute greatly. I'm, I'm, there's a wonderful story about an architect who won the national lottery and then kept working until it was all gone. And I feel somewhat in that arrangement at the moment. I'm well, just compelled to keep going. Well, I dare say we shall talk again, Mr. Wheeler. And, um, Thanks, Franco, for giving me a podium. Much <laughs> appreciated. In fact, I, I made a mistake. You're not the thrice returning. You're the four times returning now, um, just so you be aware of that. But it doesn't matter. There will be a fifth time, I do believe. Um, <laughs> Tone Wheeler, winner of the 2021 Life, Lifetime Achievement Award at the Sustainability Awards. Thank you for your time. Pleasure. We shall talk again. You've been listening to Talking Architecture and Design. Until next time, goodbye. I'm Branko Melitic. Thanks for listening to Talking Architecture and Design, brought to you in association with the Architecture and Design Network. The A&D Network proudly presents the Sustainability Awards now in their 14th year. You can find more information at sustainablebuildingawards.com.au.